Lord Jesus, thank you that you anoint Delwyn as he gives us the word tonight. I pray that as he speaks, you know, he's, I, I heard this prayer this morning and, and again now, Father, that you will put a call in his mouth and the words that will come out will be like fire to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, G. Uh, good evening to everyone. Now, uh, I was sitting during worship doing my best to make sure that when I step up, I'm not nervous. And then after that introduction, now feeling a bit of pressure. But it's absolutely wonderful to be with you guys this evening. As I was preparing in this week, there was a sense of excitement to share with you guys. I'm really trusting that the Lord would speak to your hearts on a personal level. It's interesting that Pastor Gideon says I enjoy stories. Um, It's actually how my sermon prep starts for today. It's talking about how stories play an influential role in our lives. If we were to think about it, how many of you read books? I really enjoy reading books. Those are often stories that are being communicated to us. What about the music we listen to? I'm not going to tell you what music I listen to when I'm not in church, but we all listen to music. And the music is communicating a clear story to us as well. Perhaps it's TV series that you watch, or perhaps it's movies that you enjoy. Maybe they're an escape for you, or maybe they are a source of inspiration for you. But either way, wherever you look, it seems to be very important, this idea of stories in our lives. Whenever we want to share good experiences with people, even if it's negative experiences, we generally tell someone the story of what's happened. What I want to look at today is, well, a bit of God's story and how that fits into our lives. Before we start, I want to tell you a bit about my favorite story, or rather one of my favorite stories. It comes from a movie called The Fountain. Uh, It's by a gentleman called Darren Aronofsky, and he puts together the story with the main actor being a neurosurgeon. So this guy is really smart, he makes a lot of money, what the movie says, and he's enjoying life up until a point where his wife is diagnosed with terminal cancer. Now the difficulty for this gentleman is that the tumor is located in her brain. So it takes everything in him to realize that he doesn't have what it takes to actually alter the situation or to provide some form of remedy for the person that he loves. He sets up this team that's able to do research and he's got access to the best medical care in the world. The story, or rather the movie, is not interested in what the cure is or how we go about finding this cure. The story actually does is just portray this man's journey through three different timelines. In the first timeline, it's the reality of the situation, that his wife is sick and that as skilled and as knowledgeable as he is, he's actually limited and unable to help his wife. And that's the first timeline, the current reality. When that gets a bit too much for the main character, in his mind, he flashes to a different timeline. And in this timeline, it's the reality that he actually hopes for. It's the reality that he desires deep down. Because in this timeline, it's him 
and his wife, who's perfectly healthy, except in this timeline, he's not even a neurosurgeon. Everything from his current reality disappears, and there's this new, somewhat fantasy that's created in his mind, just so that he has a different space to live in, or something to hope for and aspire to. The third timeline is one of perhaps the most interesting ones for me. What happens is when both these different current reality and the reality he's hoping for, when those become too much, he retreats. And in the movie, the scene comes up where he's just floating through space in this bubble, meditating, trying to reconcile the inner struggles that are within him. And it got me questioning myself. Firstly, why do I like such a strange movie that is really, really confusing? So I had to check movie reviews and make sure that I was actually understanding what's going on before coming and telling you guys about this movie. What really struck me is this movie seems to mirror a lot of how we live, just as human beings. Whether you live as a good disciple, whether you believe in God or not, I think it's quite true of our lives that often there's this current reality that we face. Maybe your reality is assignment deadlines fast approaching. See some heads nodding at the back, we'll pray for you afterwards. Perhaps Monday, uh, work, yeah, that's my current reality. So you have to wake up and go to work and start the cycle of a very difficult week all over again. So here's the current reality that we're actually living in, but we have an idea through our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations of where we actually want to be, of how we actually want to live, of what we would like our lives to look like. The problem is those realities are almost on polar opposites, and there's this massive, massive gap in between. That gap is sometimes referred to as liminal space. What liminal space basically means is the space in which you find yourself where you've already been through something, but you're not yet quite there. And I think a lot of our lives are played out, the stories of our lives are played out in that space where, well, we might have already come to know God, but we're not yet perfected in his image. We might have already messed up in this area, but we're not yet letting go of the things that are holding us back. There's a lot of our lives that are lived in liminal space. What we would want, then, is a story that helps define our lives, that helps define and understand, give meaning to our current reality, where we are in life, that would also give us direction for where we want to head in life. Most importantly, a story that would give us the necessary tools that we need to equip us for living within a liminal space. And the case that I want to make today is that God's word is that story for us. His extraordinary word is that story which offers us all that we need. What makes this story special? I could give you a list of about a hundred things. I really enjoy the Bible. It's one of my favorite books to read. I enjoy studying quite a bit, especially from the Bible. 
okay, wait, I need to qualify that. I have to study quite a bit because I'm studying theology from the Bible, but I actually do enjoy it. And one of the first things that I came across that gave me a hope and a confidence in the Word of God was that it's absolutely reliable and accurate. It's the departure point for claiming that this story is worth shaping our lives. If we were to compare the Bible just as a document of ancient literature, whether or not you wanted to believe what the Bible says, we're just talking about the Bible as a document of ancient literature. If you were to take it and compare it to all the other forms of ancient literature that do exist, the Bible comes out as the most reliable and accurate ancient literature document that we have. Now, that gives substance to our faith. It gives us a reason for believing. For me, that gives me a starting point to ask other questions of the Bible. I really like, enjoy, um, I really enjoy asking people questions. Before I joined the ministry, I wanted to join the police force. So I was actually a few days away from going to the academy, and the joke in my family is that my mom prayed really hard the night before because I simply forgot to hand in my application forms, and then I didn't land up going. But I could really see myself as one of those police officers who just sits and asks questions until the truth comes out. I believe that of myself. I haven't tried it. A lot of people are dishonest with me from time to time, but I'm quite sure that if I were to ask questions, I would get the answers. I really enjoy asking questions. But I don't know about you, but often there's this reluctancy to ask God questions. It almost seems somewhat disrespectful to question things of our faith, to question what we believe, why we believe this. More importantly, to take what we clearly see in Scripture and ask a couple of questions further of the Lord. Second thing that gives me hope in this story is that God's story offers some very important answers. Years before Jesus appears on the scene, we see Greek philosophers asking questions that are supposed to help us understand the meaning and the purpose of life. Some of the questions, or rather the most important questions that were asked, were generally, number one, where do we come from? Number two, what happened to the world? Why does the world look like it does? Number three, what can we do to fix it? Or rather, what can be done to fix it? And the fourth question that would be asked is, what might the future look like? It's absolutely amazing because in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, the Lord provides answers to the first three questions there. We know where we come from. We know what's gone wrong with the world. Most importantly, God has already taken the time to provide the remedy that we need. The rest of the story of Scripture is how that unfolds. It's God's redemptive story unfolding right before our very eyes. So we've got substance to our faith because of this reliable and accurate Bible, but we've also got important answers that are offered through the text. It gives us security to some of the difficult questions that we might ask. But what's really, really exciting for me is that 
our story already promises a hopeful future. Our liminal space is always going to head toward a hopeful future because that is what God is promising. The words that were shared earlier on were, I think, a confirmation of one of the points I want to stress tonight. This is that God's story becomes personal to us. It's one of the things that my mind fails to adequately explain, and sometimes to even understand. How can one story be enough to give absolutely everybody identity, purpose, belonging, salvation? It's one story, but at the very same time, that story invites the individual in. It invites you with your life, with your individual story, to come and be part of something bigger. It's not just a concept that the, the word of God is personal, but Jesus himself takes the time to make the word personal. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in the same chapter, in verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So interesting Here's Jesus at the beginning authoring with the Father this unfolding story. And as you read the Old Testament, you see the nation of Israel continually struggling to obey God, continually struggling to understand how God is unfolding the story. And the Old Testament ends, and there's about... 400 years of silence where it seems like the Lord hadn't spoken. What he had spoken wasn't written down and there was no reference point. And there comes Jesus, the author of our story, to help redirect the story, to help us understand where we're heading. He doesn't just want to take uh, a well-written story and present it to us. He wants to live it out so that he can invite us to live out the same story as well. Jesus comes to actively join and direct the very story which he created. And that's the scene for Jesus' ministry. We've been reading a lot from the book of Mark, and I wonder if I can ask you guys to perhaps turn or click away to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to spend a bit of time in Mark chapter 12. And I'm going to be reading from verses 28 34. What's happening in the context of the scripture is that people have gathered around Jesus and they're busy asking him questions. We're not entirely sure what the questions are, but just from the one question that's asked, we pick up a sense that it wasn't simple questions. Jesus, do you love me? And then he would obviously say yes to the people. It was questions that challenged the core of what people were believing. It was questions that were asking Jesus to explain the, the depths of his word to them. And in verse 28, the question is proposed. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, 
he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The teacher of the law would have known what he was asking Jesus at that point in time. He would have understood that in the Old Testament law, there were 613 different ordinances that the Israelites were expected to follow. Just let that sit in 613 different ordinances within the law. Sometimes at the end of a day, I sit and ask myself if I just managed to tick off the Ten Commandments. Now there's 613 of these. And this guy is asking Jesus, reduce it for us. Reduce it for us. Give us one. Summarize our story. At the same time, before Jesus jumps in and answers, I think it's really important that we understand who the audience is. Because Jesus is not just going to reply to the religious teacher of the law and give him the answer, give him a summary. Jesus is going to summarize the story applicable for both parties. See, the religious leaders were already obeying the law. They knew it well. It's what they taught people to do. They were in charge of sacrificial ceremonies. They already knew something of the law. But at the same time, they were living in liminal space, waiting for the Messiah that was promised to come and to build the kingdom. And that's the space they were living in. The disciples were already called. They had left fishing, they had left tax collecting, they had left behind the life of sin, and they had sold out fully to the idea of Jesus and his kingdom. Except this kingdom was not yet established. So both parties are here in the space of already, but not yet. It's almost as if they ask Jesus, within that space, what is the most important thing for us to do to make sense of our lives here? What is it that we must do? Jesus offers a very interesting response. He says that in verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What we must remember is that Jesus proposes this idea of love being the summary of our story. Except he's proposing it to people who did not have a fully developed understanding of what God's love looked like at the time of this commandment. So here's the weight, here's the pressure. This is the greatest commandment, love. Love up until that point was not clearly explained for either the religious leaders or for the disciples. It was in process of being explained. What the religious leaders used to do as an expression of love, was try and obey as many commandments of God as possible. The more you would take off, the more religious you would be. The more religious you would be, well, that's a representation of how much you love God. Then there's the disciples, my favorite people, the most imperfect people, Jesus standing, calling them off the boat, 
and in the like, oh, no, I'm not going to come. You, you're with the Son of God. You're able to see his miracles, but in their imperfection, they were still doubting him because they were still experiencing the fullness of his love. Later on in the book of Mark, a couple of chapters later in Mark 15, the disciples and everybody that uh, was present got to see the full extent of God's love when Jesus went and died on the cross for us. It was sacrificial. It would have made them rethink what love looks like and what the cost of love actually is. Second thing to remember is that it's not just one commandment that Jesus had given, but it's actually two, two aspects to the one commandment. And the first aspect is that we would love God with all of our being, heart, soul, mind, strength. The religious leaders of the day would have heard that and been a bit stuck. They would have been well-versed in loving God with their mind, well-versed in loving God with their strength, Paul writes much of the New Testament, was a religious leader of the day. And what did he do? His idea of loving God with his strength was to kill those that stood in opposition to Judaism. He loved God through his understanding of using his strength. But when Jesus says to the religious leaders that we need to start loving God with all our heart, he starts challenging their innermost being. He starts challenging spaces that they might not have yet explored or even surrendered to the law of God. And the disciples would have heard that in the same way. Second part of this commandment, or the second aspect, is that truly loving ourselves implies automatically that we will love other people. I've always thought that, well, first I need to love God well. When I've got that sorted out, a couple of months later, I'm going to go and then maybe do some counseling, maybe do some introspection, and then I'm going to start loving myself better. After that, I'm going to join the outreach team because I'm going to be able to love others. It's not what God is saying. Jesus here is saying there's one commandment and it's about doing all three at once. I think when the original hearers of this, the greatest commandment, heard this, they would have paused. They would have been a bit stuck. It would have taken time to process what God is really asking of his people here. As our story continues, as uh, this biblical narrative unfolds, the Apostle Paul, who was killing people and is now saved, uh, expanding the kingdom of God, gives us probably the first biblical definition of what love actually looks like. And it's found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's often used... At weddings, uh, it's often used, I think, quite loosely just to describe some nice things about love. But it got me thinking, here's the disciples who were never given a definition, and they had to operate and live in liminal space trying to figure out what that meant. Here comes Paul, defining love. I wonder what they would have understood of the greatest commandment after hearing how Paul defines love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, Paul says, 
that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. If we were to read this definition back into Mark chapter 12, back into the greatest commandment, we actually see that we're perhaps quite capable of trying to fulfill what Jesus gives as the greatest commandment. The disciples, when they originally heard it, would have felt the weight, the pressure of this being the greatest commandment, the religious leaders as well. But here, it seems that the Lord is actually inviting us into a process actually is for our benefit. What do we have to do? Number one, love God. We've been talking about a discipleship relationship, and that's the relationship up. We're called to love God. How do we do that? First of all, he's been all the things that 1 Corinthians 13 says. He's been patient. He's been kind. He's not been selfish toward us. He's always stayed humble. The God of the universe has stayed humble before us. It's quite something. He still is that for us. One of the most difficult journeys in our lives is dropping the things that uh, often hold us back and just simply accepting that God loves us as imperfect as we are, that that's his love toward us. Once we've learned to accept that, we need to respond in the same. How do we respond to God? How do we respond to such a love? But I've been thinking about it, and what I'd like to propose is gauge your prayer time. Review your prayer time. Record yourself if you have to while you're praying. How much of your prayers to God, your connection, your personal communication with him, are characterized by patience, characterized by kindness, by no envy, by humility, by unselfishness? Often when I pray, there's... One prayer that I avoid, asking God when, because uh, God's time and my time don't work the same. Uh, it's like my phone here and this little watch here are completely different times. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Patience often lacks in my prayer life because I want things now. I want things done a certain way. And I'll pray for it. That's not Patience. And if I'm called to love God, surely in my relationship with him, I need to be willing enough and respectful enough of God to be patient to allow his processes to work themselves out in my life. What about blaming God when things go bad? We get angry when we pray to God. We blame him sometimes for things that have gone wrong in our lives. Or is it just me? Okay. Other people as well. That's good. What about envy? Not necessarily envying other people, but asking an envious question of God. Why did you choose to bless him instead of me? And we start thinking, perhaps, even in simple things like praying, maybe there's a way to love God better, even if it's just by one degree more. How many of you would like to go to bed uh, at the end of each day saying, oh, the greatest commandment, 1% more. That's what I did today. 1% more. That's what God is offering here. 
how do we love ourselves? This is probably the most difficult one for us to understand and engage in. Firstly, I want to say, loving yourself is not the same as self-care. It's not about running a bubble bath and then reading a book in the bubble bath and then saying, Lord, I'm worshipping you, I'm loving myself here. <laughs> I honestly wish it was like that, because then I'd take time off work and just tell people I'm worshipping God. That's what I'm doing, but no, it doesn't work like that. You see, how God loves us, how he loves us, that 1 Corinthians 13 definition is the same way in which he expects us to love ourselves because he's created us and he sees value in us. I dropped my phone about a week ago and the screen doesn't look good. The screen looks like it needs Jesus' redemption here right now. But if you come and tell me how bad my screen looks, now nah, I'm going to have a problem with you. It's my screen. You can't say that about my screen. I wonder if that's the Lord's heart toward us, even when we speak badly about ourselves, even when we're unkind toward ourselves, even when we are reluctant to actually forgive ourselves. What does that do to his heart? Is he not up there saying, nah, you're not allowed to do that because this is how I see you. You see, we need to partner with God to love ourselves. We cannot love ourselves by ourselves. To those of you who have met me, you will know it's very difficult to love me and who I am. Now you want me to love myself. Now I know the depth of how bad I am. See, it's not just about when we do wrong that we need to love ourselves, but it's the place that we live from. It's more than just loving yourself through sin. I wonder if I can, think, uh, if I can ask you guys to think about the last time you missed the mark. That could be perhaps some form of moral sin. Maybe you missed a deadline at work. Uh, maybe you're letting go of a relationship or even pursuing a new one. Perhaps it's got to do with your academics. Maybe it's got to do with your health. Wherever you are, uh, just think about the last time you missed the mark. I've got mine that came to my head very, very quickly. What was your response? Were you patient and understanding that God's got you in a process and that because you're in his arms, you're actually safe? And because you're in his arms, there's actually space to get things wrong from time to time. Did you speak kind words over yourself? More importantly, are the thoughts that you have about yourself, your self-perception, is it rooted in kindness? And if it's not, then we need to let the Lord work that through our lives. Humility. I really struggle admitting when I make mistakes. But if love is humility, then I need to get comfortable with acknowledging that I'm actually nowhere near what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love and where I need to be. How often do you get angry with yourself? I don't think that's the Lord's heart for you. Most importantly... One of the lies that I see going around is people are constantly told that we need to learn from our mistakes. Except the Bible here, Jesus here, in the book of Corinthians through Paul, is saying to us that love keeps no record of wrongs. 
I think it's time we stop taking our mistakes and allowing them, even the positive things we learn from them, to start forming us. We choose to forgive ourselves for the mistakes we've made and allow God himself, nothing else, to form who we are. You see, hope, perseverance, trust, all the things that define love, those things require vulnerability. Humility and vulnerability work together. There's nothing you can take to the Lord and present to him, no matter how ugly it is, no matter how bad you think of yourself. There's nothing you can go to the Lord to present that he's going to say, I can't deal with this. The sacrifice of Jesus was enough, enough for anything that you might be facing. How then do we go and love others? Well, it can't just be between us and other people needs to be God through us going and loving other people. A challenge for me is we're often asked to give away the love that we have inside. That concept makes very little sense to me. Because if I'm understanding loving God and loving myself well, it means I'm caught up in the cycle of God's love forever and ever and ever. That's where I live. So how do I give my love away? That's wrong. The only thing I need to be giving away is the aspects of myself that don't look Christ-like. Except I don't go and give it to others. I give it to the Lord. And I say, Lord, you're asking me to love Pastor Gideon. I don't have the patience for that right now. Here is the little bit of patience I have. I'm going to lay it down. I, Dalwin, cannot love this man. But I know if you help me, I'll be able to. And then slowly I let go of aspects that I don't want to be, the aspects that God never made me to be. And slowly, by choosing him, choosing what he says to be love, I'm able to step into the true identity that he has for me as I love others. Love is not what we do for others, but it's about who we become to those people. You see... We can have outreaches every day and do a lot unless we're patient with people, unless we're kind, unless there's no envy in our hearts, unless we remain humble, (laughs) unless there's no selfishness, unless we're slow to anger, unless we're willing to let go of the record of wrongs. We cannot say that we're loving other people. But if we're not willing to do those things for ourselves, then the love we offer to other people is tainted It's disrespectful to what God is asking as the greatest commandment. See, the greatest commandment is not just, here is what you must do, go out and obey. It's actually an invitation, but it's an invitation to a challenge. (sighs) Sounds like the Lord. A little bit difficult, but we'll make it. It's an invitation to a challenge. Firstly, it invites us to abandon our stories our current realities, the realities we hope for, the things that have shaped us, the stories that have made us who we are, this invite asks us to abandon that. And then it invites us to accept and experience true love from God. But it doesn't end there, because it's not about us. It's about Him and His desires that everyone would be saved. There's a challenge to allow love to enter our liminal spaces. Not the feeling of love, but the work of love, being patient with people, being kind, being sacrificial, living from that space when we're not yet there, 
That is the challenge that this commandment puts before us. Most importantly, it asks us to live vulnerably in this liminal space. Living vulnerably is quite scary. Fear comes up when people ask me to be vulnerable. There's a sense of fear. But I'm reminded that we're talking about love, perfect love in the person of Jesus Christ living inside us is enough to cast out that fear. My encouragement to you today is to review what the Lord says is the greatest commandment, that we would love him with all we are, every single part of our being, and that through this discipleship process, we would learn to love ourselves more so that the love we give to others looks more and more like Christ's love. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the love that you have freely given to us through your Son. Lord, I pray that we would become a people characterized by love. Lord, not the Valentine's Day type of love, but the true love that takes work, that takes sacrifice, that, that puts others before ourselves, just like you've loved us. Father, help us connect our current individual stories to this bigger story that you're busy outworking, a story that ends with everyone having a space in your kingdom and being loved well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.